Today's reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal from dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You may be seated. Um, we are in our series entitled Strangers in a Strange Land, and we've been talking about how we, as believers in Christ, are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, one that has, is being built by God. Now, this past week, and I've, I don't know why I've got into this, but um, I started watching Extreme Engineering on Netflix. And uh, it blows me away. I am not an engineer. When I was a, a single guy, I had two engineers that I lived with. It was torture. Man, they wanted to rebuild the whole room from the inside out. And, and engineers have this just different mind about creating different projects. And, and the immensity of some of these projects is just astounding to me on how they could build certain things and studying it. I mean, the Panama Canal is, 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 is just astounding to me. And, and to think how they cut through all of this land so these boats could go through it. I mean, it seems simple on paper, but when you look at it, and they had to deal with all of this, this lake that would flood and wash everything away, and they created the lock system and how it could all be balanced out, it's a pretty amazing thing on how it was all constructed. And it's not the only feat like that. I mean, I think back, let's go back like 500 years and tell people that there would, there would be these certain projects that would be built, and people would be just blown away. I mean, I think about, uh, I lived in Boston for a while, and there was this thing that they called the Big Dig. And the Big Dig was huge. And what it was is they created tunnels under the city. And then under Boston Harbor. That's how they say it in New England. And, I mean, think about that. Try, try explaining that to, like, John Adams, that they're going to build a tunnel underneath Boston Harbor. And it just, it's, it's mind-blowing to think that people could do that. And, and to think some of these other projects where they were building tunnels underneath the Swiss Alps. And, and I, I mean, it's just really unfathomable. In Tokyo, they created an airport. They had to, like, build an island to create an airport. I mean, just built an island. Hey, let's just build an island right here. And it's incredible to think some of these engineering projects that man has come up with. I mean, and there's other projects that people have proposed that it sounds mind-blowing to me. Um, but yet, they used to be science fiction, and there's a quite possibility of it becoming reality. Like, they've talked about creating uh, a bridge that would go across from Alaska to Russia, crossing the Bering Strait. We've talked about this. They've ta- the one that really blows my mind is creating a tunnel with a train going underneath the Atlantic Ocean, or in the Atlantic Ocean that will connect New York to London. I mean, that's, that's whoa. But yet, we have stuff like the channel between connecting France and England, and that goes underwater. I mean, why not? Why, why not? These are extreme projects that people, that have 
men have imagined and to help make life, in other words, better and more connected. And I, I think about the, the cost of these things, and they're staggering. Here's just some numbers to give you an idea of how much some of this stuff cost. The Golden Gate Bridge cost, and this is all in today's money, $1.2 billion. $1.2 billion. Now, we're used to hearing the term trillions now. I mean, we're like, whatever. Who wants to be a millionaire? That's it. It's not a lot of money. It is. I mean, I can't even fathom, fathom that kind of money. Or think about the Panama Canal cost $14.3 billion. And what's really astounding to me is the Apollo space program. When, when the Russians went into the air, Kennedy got really motivated and said, we're going to go into space. We're going to land a man on the moon. Take a guess at how much that costs. It's unbelievable. $145 billion. $145 billion to get man to the moon. I mean, it's just incredible to think about the astounding cost of building one of these projects. But I, I think of, of what God is building for us, what God has built to bring us to Christ or to, to himself, to reconcile us with himself. How much did that cost? I mean, it's one of the most extreme engineering marvels that man has ever or will ever know. I mean, it it, it not only served as a bridge, but it it connected us to something far away that man once deemed impossible. I mean, think about that. I I, I try to think about my great-great-great-grandfather and say, by the way, one day we're going to walk on the moon. I mean, think about that. That's unfathomable to the ancient mind. I mean, can you imagine telling King David that? To see that we're actually going to be in the heavens? And yet, the mind of man has imagined these things. But yet, God's, God, no matter how much a man imagines this, no matter what kind of project that he creates, no matter how much money he spends, he can't get to God on his own. I mean, we could give all of the resources the world has ever seen, and that still couldn't connect us to God. See, God created something so extreme, so amazing, and he's building something for us that costs the most most expensive price the world has ever seen. And that's what we're going to talk about today. See, Peter understood that we are strangers in a strange world, but he wanted to remind us why we are strangers, because we have become participants and recipients of the greatest building project in universal history. And he invites us to fathom it all over again. Because see, when we look at these projects, we see how big they are. But when we find out how much they cost, the manpower involved, they become even more astounding. What was conquered, the terrain that had to be passed through, the the, the payment of human lives even. I mean, the Panama Canal costs like $14.5 billion, like I mentioned. But did you know it cost 28,000 people their lives? 28,000 people to make that happen. I mean, think of all the people that had to die on these certain projects. But do you know, when we look at salvation, only one had to die, and only one could die. And that one brought us to the greatest journey and adventure that man could ever possibly imagine. And that's a relationship with himself. So as we talk about this today and we learn about it, we're going to gain a whole new appreciation for what God has done in Christ and what he has left for us to imagine and to understand and to enter into That's what we're going to talk about today. But before that, let's ask for God's blessing on our message time. 
Our Father and our God, we come before you hungry to understand. Lord, you alone are awesome. And when we think of these great projects that man has imagined, we know that you were infinitely more greater. And the building plan that you have for us and that you orchestrated through the divine architect, Christ Jesus, is awe-inspiring. Lord, today, may we come before you humbly, hungry to understand, to know, and to enter in to this great project that you have done for us. We ask your blessing on this now, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's, let's jump right in to our text. We are in 1 Peter chapter 3, um, walking through verse 18 through verse 22. We see, first of all, in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Now, what we need to understand here is that what God gave his son, that was heaven's very best. So when we're talking about the price that was paid, we have to think about how great that price was to make that happen. So let's take a moment and reflect on the price that was paid. Reflect on the price that was paid to bring us redemption. God gave His Son, His only Son, and His Son did several different things. First of all, we see that He suffered once for sins. He suffered for me. He suffered for me and suffered for you to bring us to God. I'm amazed to understand that Christ came and knew that suffering was going to happen. He, he didn't, it didn't surprise him. It wasn't as if it was some accident. God had planned since the foundation of the world to give his son to bring about the redemption of man. And when Christ came, he knew what his responsibility was. It's amazing. When he's 12 years old, he gets separated from his parents at the temple. And his parents had been traveling probably in a caravan and the men traveled in one caravan and the women traveled in another. And he was right at that age where he would travel between where he could be with the women or the men. And when they, they finally get, you know, they're on their way, they finally connect and they said, where's Jesus? And they said, he's not with us. Well, he's not with us either. So they run back. His parents run back to the temple and they find Jesus. And they said, what are you doing? And he says, don't you know that I need to be about my father's business? See, he already had an idea that he had come to die. He had this this amazing understanding of why he came. Several times in Scripture, we read that Jesus is asked to do a task, and he says, my hour is not yet come. Meaning that he knew the moment in time that God had ordained him to come to bring about your redemption, to suffer for you. He knew it. And it's the most amazing and fascinating thing is in Luke chapter 9. When it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, meaning he was bound and determined to accomplish this goal, and nothing would deter him from suffering for you. Nothing would stop him. It's amazing. See, that's why Jesus, after he had talked with the disciples, remember what Peter had done when Jesus said that he must suffer many things and die? What did Peter do? He pulled him aside and he said, No, 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 Lord, not you. You're not going to suffer. And what does Jesus say to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. See, Jesus knew acutely that this was the way that our redemption had to be accomplished. That God the Son would suffer to bring about our redemption. So this price that was paid is inestimable. To think about the suffering of the Son of God is incomprehensible to our mind. That God would do that for us is just beyond our ability to fathom. 
to grasp. That he would, he was resolute, focused toward a goal that with a determined will. Nothing was going to stop him. See, he knew that he was going to suffer, and that suffering would bring about our redemption. It reminds me of the story of this little boy that Robert Coleman, who was a seminary professor of mine, had told in one of his books called Written in Blood. He tells this story about a little boy whose sister had a, um, needed a blood transfusion. The doctor explained that she had the same disease the boy had recovered from two years earlier. And the only way that, that she could recover is if she received the blood, a blood transfusion from someone who had conquered the disease and the boy had. So he asked, the doctor asked the little boy, he says, would you give your blood to Mary? Johnny hesitated. His lower lip started to quiver. He smiled and said, sure, for my sister. Soon the two children were wheeled into the hospital room. Mary was pale and fragile. Johnny was strong, robust, and healthy. Neither spoke, but when their eyes met, Johnny grinned. As the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, Johnny's Johnny's smile faded. He watched the blood flow through the tube. With the ordeal almost over, his voice, slightly shaky, broke the silence. And he said, Doctor, when do I die? Only then did the doctor realize why Johnny had hesitated and why his lip had trembled. See, when he agreed to donate his blood, he thought he was giving his blood to his sister. That meant giving up his life for her. In that brief moment, he had made his great decision that he would care to die so that his sister would live. See, Jesus, Jesus agreed to die so that we might live. And our condition is far worse than Mary's ever was. See, Jesus agreed to suffer for us but he also substituted himself for us. Notice the phrase in your text, the righteous for the unrighteous. The Bible says that we are all unrighteous sinners in our hearts and in our deeds. We were guilty, guilty, deserving of God's condemnation. And the Bible is clear and unequivocal that each time we sin, we are storing up wrath for ourselves. For the wages of sin is death. We're going to have death. Not just our physical death, but a spiritual death. That we will die once. But then those who have rejected Christ will die a second death. A much more painful and horrifying death. That Jesus substituted himself for me. I'm reminded of this story um, in the movie to End All Wars, starring Kiefer Sutherland. And the, the film is about um, being in a Japanese labor camp in the last three years of World War II, where all of these Scottish prisoners are held. And the camp is divided, the, the prisoners are divided into two different divisions, and it's, it's surrounded by jungle all around. And on one division it, that, that runs it is uh, Major Campbell. Major Campbell is the leader of one, and the other one is a man named Dusty. And these two men don't like each other. 
Dusty has become a Christian and in this prison camp has been holding a secret ongoing Bible study and he's trying to live the way that Jesus wants him to live by loving his enemies. Campbell would do anything in his power to kill the enemy and escape. And he can't stand what Dusty stands for. So Campbell finds an opportunity to escape. He kills a guard and makes his way out when he is captured and brought back. Now, all of the prisoners know that if you are caught breaking the law, you will be executed. So the, the commander, of the, the Japanese commander of the labor camp, brings them all in to witness this man's execution. They place him on his knees, and he knows he's about to die, and he knows that he deserves the punishment that he's about to receive. But Dusty sees this man getting ready to die. And he remembers what Christ said about it is good for a man to lay down his life for his friends. So he calls out to the commander. The commander has the sword in hand and ready to decapitate the major. And the the, the commander stops and walks over to Dusty. And Dusty whispers something to him. The commander gets a very disturbed look on his face. But then he nods and he walks over to where... The, the major is kneeling, ready for execution, and the man is extremely fearful. And he orders that the tie around his hands be cut. And he looks at him and he says, you are free. And, and he's, in, he's in denial. What do you mean I'm free? And he just leaves him behind and he walks and he grabs Dusty and he takes him out to the cemetery. And he had found, interestingly enough, when they were doing, uh, like they were cleaning up the barracks and they were trying to find confiscated material or banned material, they found a picture of Jesus on the cross. And so he mocks this God that he worships, and he decides to execute him because he had offered up his life in return for his friend. And, and, and then he, he gets there, and he sees that the, the commander decides to crucify him as a means of mocking his God and his faith for giving his life for his friend. But what really blew the, ma- the mind of the major was that, how could someone give his life for me? This man that I can't stand. I know that I have done wrong. I know that I have disobeyed and I deserve my sentence, but he doesn't. See, that's a picture of what Jesus did for us. He substituted himself for us. We deserved our sentence. And he substituted himself for each one of us because our sins merited the condemnation of Almighty God. He substituted himself for us. Now, Jesus gave up his life so I and we could have it. We were guilty. He was not. But there's more. Notice in verse 18, another little phrase there, that he might bring us to God. Now, the word there for bring means literally lead to, bring to, to introduce, to provide access for, to bring about a right relationship. In other words, he sought me. God sought us. We were the one sheep that went astray in the scripture. He leaves the 99 to find. He saw us, saw us in the midst of our sin. I'm reminded of the great old hymn, Victory in Jesus. Some of you who have been around a while might know that song and the chorus. The chorus is what I really, truly admire, where he says, Victory in Jesus. My Savior forever, he sought me and bought me 
with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. He sought me. He sought me. It's an amazing picture that God would seek us out. That Christ would cross all eternity for us. But I digress. As we I think about even the, the last line of that chorus, beneath the cleansing flood. You know, Peter talks about a flood. Verse 20, he says, Because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. See, right there he's talking about the flood. Now, what amazes me about the flood, I mean, we talk about the ark, right? And we get this picture in our mind that we've been kind of conditioned in our culture. For some reason, when I think about knowing the ark, I think about nurseries for babies. You get that picture? With all the little fluffy animals and Noah with the white beard, they're all coming in and it's all sweet and nice and, aww, you know? But I want a more biblical, biblical Noah scene in the nursery. Because remember... There was something else going on. It was because of the disobedience of man and the wrath of God was being poured out. So as all the animals are all nice inside and warm, there are dead bodies floating on top of the water. I mean, we really got a good picture of this. It's God's judgment that is being brought. That God had been patient with us. But I mean, God is a God of wrath. We forget that. That our God is a God of love? Yes. But He is also a God of wrath. That He does seek us. But we forget how bad we really were. Do you know the Bible describes us as children of wrath? Deserving of wrath. Deserving of our judgment. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1-3. through I want you to see this. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, all of us were children of wrath. Every single one of us were children of wrath without exception. Now, this is where we get into very murky water. Because that means that God's wrath is upon us. Now, how can God love us and yet have his wrath still be upon us? And undoubtedly, we've heard the phrase, love the sinner but hate the sin. Right? Did you know that that's not, a, that's not in the scripture? Do you know where that originates? Gandhi. In his 1929 autobiography. But see, what we have done with that, and while there is a certain element that's true, we forget that we can't separate our sin from ourselves because we deserve our sentence. That if we just separated it from ourselves and said that we have sin and we're not sinners, it's different. The Bible sees them together. We are by children of wrath because of our sin. So yes, while God does love us, He still hates 
our sin and even hates us. But there's still an element because of his love, he desires to love us. But because of his love, he still remains wrathful. See, this is what I mean by that. With my children, my daughter asked me a question. My younger daughter asked me a question the other day. She said, Daddy, do you love me? I said, of course. She goes, do you love me more than this house? I said, of course. She goes, do you love me more than Jesus? No. And she goes, "Oh." And I said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Because I love Jesus, I can love you the way that God wants me to love you. Because of that. And, and that means that I'm going to want the very best for you because God wants the very best for you. And when we choose something that is not our best, which is sin, then God gets angry because of his love. Because he wants us to have the very best. And when we choose something that is, is against God, he gets angry. And he is wrathful toward us in that regard. So God is a God of wrath. And we see that being poured out during Noah's time. That God is a God of wrath. But what's amazing to me is that though God is a God of wrath, because we, we, he sees us engaging in all kinds of our sinful desires. Now, I hear people say, well, God is love. And if, and if God is love and if two people love one another, that's okay. They can do whatever they want. No, that's not okay. Why? Because love has to be contained within the avenue in which God has ordained it to be. Because of the fall, it goes everywhere. It's a lot like this. For those who are sci-fi people, then you'll understand this. Remember Cyclops from X-Men? Right? Cyclops from X-Men has this amazing optic blast that he has to have this visor to control. And if he opens his eyes any other way and he doesn't have that on, it shoots everywhere. See, that's like our desires. Because our desires want to go everywhere. But it's the word of God that filters it and channels it by the Holy Spirit to where they're supposed to go. So when our love goes outside of the parameters that God wants, it's going to destroy everything around. But when it's channeled, when it's focused under the authority of God's Holy Spirit in accordance with the word of God, there's great blessing. See, that's what we need to understand, is that we are children of wrath, but we give in to all kinds of sin, which is why God is wrathful toward us. But see, the Son of God stepped in our place, substituted himself, and then satisfied God's wrath by becoming sin for us. See, when Christ was on the cross, all of the wrath that you deserved for every single sin that you have done, past, present, and future, was poured out on the Son of God in a moment. That's why, when Jesus was on the cross, he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabatani. Which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he had become forsaken that we could be received and adopted. See, he had to satisfy God's wrath and pay the penalty for each one of our sins. Satisfy God's wrath. Now, it's interesting. We can't have Christianity without the cross of Christ. See, when many people today say that things aren't sin, that the Bible declares overwhelmingly that they are sin, they're making the cross null and void. They're saying that the cross has no meaning because the cross only is in focus and in play if there is sin that we need to be saved from. 
So we have to understand that the cross is essential in that regard. And it's the power of God that brings about our redemption, as Paul so eloquently puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. It is the power of God that brings us into favor. But we have to believe it and we have to see and relish the beauty of it. And what that means is that when we receive Jesus, we relinquish the car keys. See, many of us, we're, we're just like in driver's ed. You know, we let him have the passenger seat and turn the wheel a little bit, but we really want to be in control. See, when you receive Christ, you say, no, 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 I'm going to put a back seat and he's going to drive. I'm giving him the direction, entire direction of my life. Now, for us to see this great and enormous engineering project and to really understand its immensity, then it also involves us grasping the power that was displayed. We have to grasp the power that was displayed. Just as we look at an engineering project and we see all of the things that needed to happen for it to be brought to fruition, the same is true with the power of the cross. The cross is powerful. It's more powerful than a tsunami, a tornado, an earthquake, a volcanic eruption, all rolled into one. I don't know if you've ever seen a tornado up close, but they're powerful things. I was watching another Netflix thing the other day on tornadoes. I'm such a geek, but I'm watching this thing on tornadoes and just seeing how powerful one is. And these tornado chasers, these people need a psychological evaluation. And I'm watching these people chasing it, and they're like right up close. They're taking pictures like it's in the background, like it's a prom date. Hey, look, <laughs> destruction is the theme. Um, and they're watching this occur, and you see this house just get picked up right behind them. An entire house. Just, it's gone in a moment. And how powerful that is. And even the tsunami that happened in Japan. Remember that? We all saw the video footage of it. How it just picked up cars and just washed them away. Buildings totally destroyed. And the gospel, the, the cross, is more powerful than all of those things combined. The worst storms that nature can throw out. The greatest tragedies and natural disasters. Even weapons of mass destruction. The gospel levels them all. You know what all those things are in comparison to the power of God? Remember those little snap things that you get on 4th of July to little kids and they throw it on the ground and it pops? Those are all of those things combined in the sight of God. Snap. God's power is so much more grand and wonderful and awesome and fearful. See, what happened that day on the cross was so powerful that it could never be repeated. It was completely sufficient. It was sufficient. Look back at your text. For Christ also suffered once for sins. How many times did he suffer? Once. It was only necessary once. It was perfect. It was done. You don't need to ever do it again. I mean, many of us, we can't imagine that because we we make mistakes all the time. I mean, I I think about... this is a very small way, but at my house, I, I'm given the responsibility of hanging pictures. And if anyone has been around me for any period of time, a hammer is the last thing that I ever should be holding. And you have to have a level. And I, I'm good if I just have to put one nail and it hangs on it. That's easy to mess with. It's when I have to do two or put a shelf. And I, I remember being with like real expert carpenters, and they look at it, and they put the level on it. It's perfect. And they say, perfect. I had this one guy, he would say, Jump back, kiss myself. It's perfect. You know? And I think I can't even get that right. 
I mean, think about all of the details that are involved with bringing about redemption. I think of even, even Hubble Telescope and all the money that was spent to bring this huge telescope and put it into space. And they get out there and it's just like thousands, or I mean, so many small infinitesimal degrees that we would never even think about off. And the whole thing didn't work. didn't bring it into focus. They had to go up and repair it. I mean, I think about all the money that was spent and everything just was slightly off, just so small. See, the Son of God, his sacrifice was so perfect. There was nothing wrong with it ever. Never to be repeated. It was completely perfect as it is. The greatest price ever paid, it was done one time only. And it was completely sufficient to bring about your redemption and everyone else's redemption. And it can take the worst sinner and transform them. It's sufficient even for them. But see, we have this tendency to think that those people are outside. I mean, we don't think of ourselves as that bad, so it's okay. But when we encounter a worse sinner, someone has done really something really awful, bad, then it's suddenly not sufficient. But it is sufficient. See, I think we have failed to grasp the power of the cross and what happened during that moment in time. But let's get back to our text. The cross was and is completely sufficient, and it was also powerful in its scope. In its scope. Look at verse 19. And this is one of the most confusing passages in all of Scripture. We're going to be spending some time on this. That has baffled scholars for generations. In verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now I'm going to break this, this passage down. Who are the spirits in prison? Now the Greek term pneuma, spirit, can mean, in the singular or the plural form, can refer either to earthly spirits, or like human spirits, or angelic spirits, also the demonic now, I believe here that he's actually referring to both, although primary, primarily referring to humans, and here's why. See, after Jesus' death on the cross, where did he go? You ever ask yourself that question? Where did he go? Now, it's interesting that one of the early Christian creeds, called the, the, uh, some of the early confessions of faith, said that he descended into hell. Descended into hell. But we have a very strange understanding of hell. See, the Bible describes where you go when you die in two different ways. The Old Testament is used the word Sheol. It describes the abode of the dead. It's where the abode of the dead go. And then in the New Testament, the word that is employed is Hades. And it simply just means the abode of the dead. Now, within Scripture, and where we, we, we have to understand here, and, and you have to stay with me, is by looking at different isolated passages and putting them together to get a good picture of what happened when Jesus died. And not only that, but where he went. Now, when we describe Sheol, we see that there are two compartments within Sheol in the Old Testament. Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 16, when he refers to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where this man dies, and, after, and rich man and Lazarus knew one another in life. Lazarus had been going through a very difficult time, but yet he believed in God. The rich man uh, had an amazing life on earth, but he wasn't generous to God and didn't believe. So they both die. Lazarus goes to paradise or Abraham's bosom while the, the rich man is in torment in a flame. And there is a chasm that Jesus says that separates the two. Now, when Jesus died, he goes and frees the Old Testament saints from from. The Abraham's bosom, which is also called paradise. 
Now, we also gather this from uh, this Jesus talking about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus describes John the Baptist in this way. He says, Among those born among women, there is none greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So then, the question begs us to understand, how could someone who's least in the kingdom of God be greater than John the Baptist? It's because that John the Baptist hadn't yet been a beneficiary of Christ's atoning death. That's why. So John the Baptist goes where Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and all of them go to Abraham's bosom. Now, in Sheol are the unrighteous dead and the righteous dead, which we also call are the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead, which is the, the blessed people, which is paradise, and it's a, a wonderful place. And the chasm separates where these people are in torment. Now, in, within Sheol itself, there's also two divisions. And we see this illustrated in the book of Second Peter, as well as in the book of Jude, where we see that there are angels that had sinned against God, and God had created a place for them to be held in chains for the time of the judgment. Now let me show these verses to you. Second Peter 2, 4-5 through 5, just talks about this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. See, the hell there is Hades, is the word in Greek. Um, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, what I want to see here is this angels, when they sin, cast them into hell, meaning that they are being held in chains. So then Sheol has a place that is even divided in the unrighteous part between... Um, Humans and then the devil and his, or these, not the devil, but his fallen, some of his fallen angels. And we know that hell itself was created to house the devil. That's what Jesus says in the book of Matthew. But Jude also talks about this similar thing that's here, uh, or Second Peter again in verse 9 through 10. He says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So we see that then he's referring to the divisions. The unrighteous are going to be held until the day of punishment. And then the, um, the, the, the demonic angels are going to be there as well. So you have the, the unbelieving humans and then the angels who sinned. And they're going to be there a short time. Well, people say, how can this be? It's a little bit like this. Um, when someone, stay with me for a moment, when someone does something wrong, they break the law, where do they go immediately? Jail, right? Jail. Um, and they go to jail. Now, is jail permanent or temporary? It's temporary. It's a holding place. To go into what? Prison. Or determine if they're guilty or not. See, this is what Sheol and the abode of the dead is, it's the holding place until they get cast into the lake of fire that Revelation 20 verse 11 talks about because it says that Hades gives up the dead that is in it and then they are cast altogether into the lake of fire where there's going to be even more greater punishment than what they experienced there. It's worse. Now, that's, people say, well, how can the, un, the, the righteous and the unrighteous be there together at the same time? Well, let's, let's go back to the jail analogy again. In jail, you have prisoners and you have guards. The guards are only there a short time and then they go free. I mean, they're free. They're working. They're not, they're not held there. Or maybe it's better to look at it this way. It's like uh, I, when I went to India, I stopped in Abu Dhabi. When I came back, I stopped in Abu Dhabi again. And before we, we could come to our gate, um, we could only come to our gate a certain amount, of, a certain time. And our gate, when you came upon it, was all walled in glass. 
It's not like gates at O'Hare where you have different gates you can go sit anywhere else. See, you had to go through all the security checks, and then once you got to the gate that's going back to the U.S., you had to go through another security check, and when you got to your gate, you were stuck. You could not get out of that. That gate was all surrounded by glass. See, that's where the unrighteous dead are going. They're waiting to go to their destination, the lake of fire. So they're in a torturous place that they can't escape from, and they can't, they're waiting for their plane to take them to the lake of fire, while the righteous dead are in the executive privilege lounge, waiting to catch their flight to glory. And when Jesus comes, he preaches to the spirits in prison that he's victorious over sin. He takes the Old Testament saints and sends them off into glory... And yet, he hasn't himself ascended yet, and doesn't until after he rises from the dead. He's 40 days on earth, and he goes up to heaven. Now, what does that mean? It means that through the Old Testament, even then, the power of Christ was evident, because Christ, and it says that he was speaking through the spirits of the prophets, prophets, was speaking even through Noah, and that even people in the Old Testament had an opportunity of salvation by the hope and the promise of Christ that was to come. So imagine it being a straight line, and there's a cross right in the middle, and in the Old Testament they were saved by looking forward to Christ, and then after the death of Christ, everyone's saved by looking back at Christ. And it's all about Christ. See, that's the magnificent thing about it. The scope and the power of the gospel of God and what Christ did on the cross is unfathomable to our minds. But see, we have domesticated the cross. We've become bored can't become bored. The reality is, is the cross isn't boring. You've become boring. The cross is the wisdom and the power of God and it is magnificent in its scope. Magnificent in its scope. And we see that it's powerful and it's so powerful that can it save the worst offender. That's the part I want us to really take home. We can save the worst offender, the unrighteous for the righteous. See, it's all the unrighteous are all categorized together. It means that he can save the abuser, the addict. He can save the prostitute, the porno star. He can save the drug addict. He can save the thief, the liar, the molester, the maligner. He can save the worst offender. He can save the serial killer. That's how great the gospel of God is. It can save the vilest, the foulest, and the worst person that you can possibly think of. And the gospel is sufficient. It can save anyone. To transform them. There's no one outside of the scope of God's love. Now notice, Peter draws a comparison between salvation and the ark and baptism. The ark is what is called a type a type. A type is like a symbol that prefigures the real thing. Both baptism and the ark are symbols of being saved by the waters of judgment. Now, Noah was showing his faith in God's coming judgment and salvation from it by getting aboard the ark. It wasn't the water that saved him. It was his obedience and response to what God had laid forth. The same is true about baptism. When it's saying that baptism saves, it's not saying that the literal act of baptism saves a person. It's saying that it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. So when Peter says that it saves, he's saying that it represents an inward faith that is seen in one's appeal to God 
for the forgiveness of sins for a good conscience. So baptism saves only in as much as it is a visible representation of us participating in the death and resurrection of Christ. It is then a visible, visual representation of an inward condition that we are now unified with him. So what does Peter want, say this to us? He wants us to be sure that if we're going to be a part of God's extreme engineering project, then it involves us making sure that we are following the pattern that was laid. Following the pattern that was laid. Both of those are symbols of leaving judgment and slavery. You know, that, what I mean is, is that the Noah going into the ark is a symbol of being saved from the wrath of God because he believed God. But that's not the only type within Scripture. There's another one, too. Passing through the Red Sea. We see this in 1 Corinthians. We're talking about how people were baptized. And it was the understanding that the people, by passing through the Red Sea, were leaving slavery to sin and embracing Christ, embracing God's righteousness and living and freedom that is offered through him. See, baptism is the same symbol that is there. It is, an, it is a symbol or a visual representation of an inward transformation. And it symbolizes and is demonstrating Christ's death to sin. This is why we see immersion being so important. Because it shows and demonstrates one going under the water just as Christ was buried in the tomb. And him being resurrected from the dead, us coming out of the water, shows our participation with him. See, when Christ was baptized... In the book of Matthew, he did so as a means of identifying with us, taking his stand with sinners, even though he himself had no sin, nor sin to be cleansed from. By our baptism, we are showing that we are identifying with him, and we are having an appeal to God, an appeal to God for a good and clean conscience. So that's what we need to understand and we need to take home with us. Following the pattern, what was laid involves uh, having its good conscience, but also shows an attitude of God's patience. See, God was patient with the people during Noah's time. And what he does is he gives Noah a countdown clock to build the ark of 120 years. It takes Noah, scholars differentiate between 55 and 75 years to build it. But what's fascinating is that he's giving man opportunity to repent Because by showing this waters of judgment that's to come, he's saying it's going to come, but it's not yet. In other words, I'm giving you time to repent before I bring judgment. See, God through Christ is giving us time to repent before he brings his judgment. That's one of the things that is demonstrated with this. That it's showing an attitude of God's patience. Because God wants us to be a part of his work of salvation. See, right before we have our service, we have a countdown clock. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's counting down to the time. Why? Because we want everyone here together to worship together. See, God was giving his countdown clock through Noah so that people would be saved, but man rejected, rejected God's offer of salvation, and man had to suffer for his disobedience. So this pattern shows an attitude of God's patience. And it also, we see in 2 Peter 3.9, which looks like we're having some screen issues. 2 Peter 3.9, it talks about how God's patience is for us. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, this pattern demonstrates God's patience, but it also demonstrates an appeal for a good conscience. 
A good conscience. It's an appeal to God have him wipe our sins away by putting them on his son. Just as we've talked about before, the great Texan Sam Houston was baptized. And they told him, Sam, your sins have been washed away. And he said, God help the fish. Okay, it's not literal, but it's saying it's, it's understanding that I am participating in the death of Christ and my sins have been washed away. That I'm clean now in the sight of God. That I'm no longer chained to my sin and pay the penalty for my sin. That I can be free from my sin and embrace Christ's righteousness. Lastly, we see that this pattern is an action that requires obedience. An action that requires obedience. See, Noah had to act on God's warning to him, and we too are to act by showing our love for him by being baptized. Now, for those that haven't been baptized, this is your baptism class. Next week, we're having a baptism. It's a time of celebration. And I'm extending an invitation to those who are here today that if you have yet to follow the Lord in baptism, consider this your class. And the next week, you need to come ready for baptism, but you need to speak with me first because we want to see people following the Lord in baptism because, see, most groups see baptism as the finish line. It's not. It's the starting line. I mean, faith in Christ gets you onto the track, but it's, it's the running in the race, and that's at the starting block. That's baptism. That's to show you're in the race. So if you need to be baptized, you need to say, I need to follow the Lord in holy baptism, then you need to do it, and you need to do it next week, and you need to invite your family and friends that they can see your hope and faith in Jesus Christ, that they can see demonstrated tangibly in front of them that he died to sin and he lives forever, and that us, by faith in him, have that same life. So this next week, as we think about the crucifixion of our Lord, we think about what it means to have redemption with him and new life. Because this redemption of Christ gives us new life, gives us hope, gives us forgiveness, gives us not only forgiveness, but gives us the ability to forgive others. As C.S. Lewis said, he said it this way. He said, God forgives the inexcusable in us that we might forgive the inexcusable in others. See, we receive God's forgiveness, then we forgive other people, meaning that our life is then transformed because we recognize who God is. And then our marriage, we look at our marriages differently. We look at our workplaces differently. We work at how we raise our children differently because we want to do it in such a manner that pleases God. How we interact, how we do conflict, how we spend our money, how we invest our entertainment, how we go about our interpersonal relationships, how we invest our time, what are our pursuits. By showing our baptism, we are showing that we are going to follow the Lord and that we're going to place the entirety of our lives at his feet, surrendering to him, acknowledging that we have passed through the waters of judgment, that Christ's judgment is coming. And he will pour out his wrath, by the way. Revelation 16 shows that there is the wrath of the Lamb and God the Father that's going to be poured out on all unbelievers. But now his patience waits, but it only waits so long. We must respond to it. God has been patient to you. That doesn't mean that he will continue to be patient because we don't know when that will end. That's why the scripture says, behold, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Don't wait. Don't don't leave it behind. Do what God wants you to do. As we conclude our time, I'm reminded, as I was talking with one of my children yesterday, we were looking in the word together in John chapter 1. And I was reminded as we've been talking about the light of the world. John chapter 1, verse 9 through 13 says this. The true light, which is Jesus, 
which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, the world does not know him, does not recognize God's extreme engineering project, refuses to use this greatest resource and tool and transformation act that has been known to man. The world doesn't know him and it doesn't know us either. We are strangers in this world. The people of this world, the Jews especially, have rejected him, but for us who believe, he gives us the right to become his children. What a promise that if we receive him, we will be his children. And what is remarkable is that this light could not be overcome by darkness. See, this Friday, we're going to talk about the light of the world and how it went dark, just as this Lenten wreath with this last candle that is behind me will be extinguished. But this light didn't go out because of an outside force. It's because he laid down his life for us to take it up again. And you know what? That light can never be overcome. As Jesus, or as John wrote in John chapter 1, verse 4 through 5, And him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness might look like it's going to triumph for a little while, just like it seems to now as we look at all the wickedness in the world, but the light of Christ will triumph in the end. And by following him, we receive him in faith. We follow him in the ordinance of baptism, declaring that we believe that he is the Christ and our life is going to be surrendered to him. Will you be baptized? Have you yet received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? It involves repenting of your sins and believing that, Jesus, that God raised Jesus from the dead and that he is the Savior of the world and you will be saved. And then you are to follow the Lord if, in holy baptism. If you have yet to be baptized, please speak with me at the conclusion of the service. If you want to be baptized, we want to do that next week. We want to have a time of celebration. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you alone know us better than we know ourselves. We know at our hearts that we are sinners. We sin every day. Some of us have sinned in the middle of this service. Some of us were sinning this morning or last night. Lord, we have so many sins that we are continually burdened by them. Lord, help us to see the power of the cross, that the power of the cross gives us freedom, that you became our substitute to set us free. And Lord, we know that when the Son sets you free, we are free indeed. Help us to live in that freedom, to not continually go back to the prison of our pride or our sin. Help us to truly understand the power that is at work in the gospel of God as we remember and reflect on this holy week. And Lord, if there's someone here today who is still holding on to their sin and yet has not received you as Savior, but yet is still has the wrath of God upon them, Lord, I pray that they might repent of their sin and they might step into the Savior as the Son of God and he recognizes or she recognizes that the Son of God took this, the wrath of God upon himself so that we would not have to. And Lord, for those who desire to follow you in holy baptism, I pray that you might touch their heart, give them the courage to take that step, to step into the waters, that they might declare before a watching world that you were the Christ and that they are going to follow you with the wholeness of their life. And Lord, please continually work within us as you already are doing 
that your name might receive glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.